0: The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Recovery, the Hero's Journey. Your host is Dr. Patricia Halligan. If addiction or prescription drug dependence affects you, directly or indirectly, whether it's you, a family member, or a close friend, stay tuned over the next hour as we explore substance use disorders, process addictions, and prescription drug dependence. We'll be discussing the painful reality behind these disorders and what can be done to help. Now, here is Dr. Patricia Halligan.
1: Welcome to Recovery the Hero's Journey. I'm Dr. Patricia Halligan today. I'm delighted to introduce a friend of mine, Matt, who has generously agreed to share his recovery journey with us. Matt is an attorney and a partner in a prestigious law firm somewhere in the United States. He recently celebrated nine and a half years clean and sober. Matt is co-chairman of his County Bar Associations, Lawyers Concerned for Lawyers Program, and on the committee for his State Bar Associations Lawyers Assistance Program. Matt, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it very much. Thank you for the opportunity.
1: Well, thanks for agreeing to share your uh, experience, uh, strength, and hope with us. Um, What can you tell us about life uh, before and after recovery?
2: Well, I I have a lot to tell you about life before uh, and During and after and what it is like today, Um, as as you previously stated, I, you know, I've been so my sobriety date is in April of 2012. And uh, I I say that because every time I hear it, it's it's a minor miracle in my life. Uh,
0: You know, when I uh,
2: when I first got sober, I I thought my life was going to be completely over. And uh, that I never was going to have a, any fun in my life ever again, and everything around me was gray and miserable. And uh, what what I've learned is that I I didn't know then what was best for me, and uh, you know I'm I'm still to this day not entirely sure what's best for me. But uh, I found that if I if I work a program of recovery, things have a tendency of working out and the things that I thought were the absolute worst experience, worst experience of my life, actually in retrospect was the best thing that ever happened to me. So, you know, I'm sitting here today and I am proud to honestly say that I am, um, you know, a grateful recovering alcoholic. And I think if you would have told me that, uh, you know, ten years ago, I would have I, I would have laughed in your face and, and called you crazy, and, and thought that was absolutely impossible.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, what what it was like was, uh, you know, early on. I, I just a bit of my history. I was raised in a, in an upper upper middle class family. Uh, my father was a ter- an attorney in the area, and um, he was also an alcoholic, and he was sober throughout my childhood. And he always, you know, told me that, uh, I have a genetic predisposition to alcohol and, uh, I would completely discard everything he would say. And in my mind, I would say, you know, he, he couldn't handle his, his, his drinking. That's, uh, certainly not the situation with me. I'm different. I'm unique. And that's, I mean, that's really a common theme. My, my attitude of terminal uniqueness that, uh, has been per- pretty pervasive throughout my life. But, um, you know, I think as a child, I was always I was always very competitive. I always had a, an incessant need to, to win at any game that was played. I, uh, in my mind, and this is not something my parents taught me, but I defined success as a child as, you know, making a lot of money when you grow up, having a nice house, you know, having nice cars, being married to you know a wonderful woman and mm-hmm. you know having children and that to me in my mind was the absolute definition of what success would be and then if you were successful uh, the byproduct of being successful was happiness and you know that that drove my life for a long time and um, you know had it had boomeranged back on me later in life but my my first, uh, experience with alcohol uh, was when I was 13 years old and my buddy and I stole a uh, bottle of vodka from this girl we knew his uh, mother and I remember uh, I blacked out I threw up all over my my living room at my house my friend was over for the for the evening and you know my Mother came down the next day and immediately wondered why the dog had gotten so sick and I <laughs> latched I latched onto that immediately and I and I will tell you Dr. Halligan I had one of the sickest dogs in town for a very long time that <laughs> uh, threw up that everywhere before, it was sick all the time and just you know couldn't couldn't stop throwing up Oh no uh, but you know it was it was interesting to me because I I remember it and I remember you know despite the the vomiting that I'm like I can't wait to do that again and um, that's that's kind of how it went for me I, I you know I played a lot of sports and I I hung with a with an older crew in high school and was introduced to uh, cocaine and, and marijuana at uh, a pretty young age and I I recognized from you know, my interactions with my parents that really the, the issue from their, their perspective was grades. And, you know, provided I was getting good grades at school, uh, that was, you know, a recipe for leniency in other areas of my life. And, um, you know, so luckily school really came pretty easy to me. So I didn't have to apply too much, um, you know, effort to maintaining at least their standard of uh what what uh, acceptable grades were and i know that um you know this this went on and it went on through through college uh i think the the drinking and the drugs i, I had a lot of a lot of fun for a long time mm-hmm. drinking and drugging uh, i, I Cannot deny that fact, you know. And the reality was that there there came a point in my in, in my life when that completely stopped, and it no longer was was fun for me. And there also came a line that I crossed somewhere along the way that the power of choice was was taken away from me. Uh, it wasn't, you know, whether I wanted to or not. I I had to. All the time,
1: um, you crossed a line in the sand, and it became a mental obsession or a physical
2: obsession. That's absolutely that's absolutely true, and it's it's interesting because I didn't even know when the line was crossed. It just it's like I woke up one day, and the the obsession was overwhelming, and there was really nothing in my own power uh, that that I could do to stop. And I mean that didn't happen in law school, because in law school, I was able to moderate my drinking to, to, and my drugging, uh, to be able to get the work done that needed to be done at the time. Uh, Really what, you know, they talk about alcoholism and and drug addiction being a progressive, uh, a progressive disease. And I, and I truly believe that. And it's, it certainly centers in the mind and it's centered in the mind for me. Uh, But, you know, really when the, when I reached the point of after law school, I came back to um, the town that I live and I I got married and things, everything was going my way. Everything was absolutely wonderful. And the the golden boy, the golden boy. Mm -hmm. Right. And what I felt inside was hollow. I felt empty. I I think the best way for me to describe uh, how I felt was I felt like my skin didn't fit my body. Uh, I was, I was constantly uncomfortable. Uh, I was restless. I was irritable. I was discontent Yep. Uh, basically all the time. And um, you know, I think that's when my solution in my head was, you know, more, you're obviously, you're not taking enough drugs uh, to make you feel better. You're not drinking enough to take any pain away you have. and, you know, I, conti- I my, my drug and alcohol abuse continued uh, to the point where it really was, it was a 24-7 endeavor. And, uh, you know, I remember towards the end that, that really there was a time in the morning, maybe between like 10.05 and, and 10.20 that I felt like a human being. And for the rest of the day, I was, I was chasing something. Uh, that was just out of reach, and that I could never, I could never catch up to, and life was hell. Um, you know, they, they, we talk about you know reaching bottoms, and somehow, some way, you know, I never, I, I was never uh, convicted of any any driving drunk infractions or any crimes or, or got any trouble uh, with with you know professionally but I wanted to die. Uh, I was absolutely uh, suicidal towards the end. I, I remember vividly thinking about wanting to, you know, jerk my wheel into oncoming traffic on a, on a daily basis. I, I, I was absolutely hopeless. Um, and it really was an emotional bottom for me. Uh, I don't know, what it was on a, on a certain day that finally got me to the point of basically saying, I I can't, I can't live like this anymore. Did
1: did it feel like a double life?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, there were lies upon lies upon lies. Um, You know, it was really a a full-time job, just trying to maintain all the different lies that I had to feed the addiction. Um, You know, my wife wasn't, wasn't talking. I mean, she was very, you know, obviously things weren't good at home. Mm -hmm. Uh, she knew something was wrong. She didn't really know what was wrong because I was so secretive about everything.
1: But did she Uh, feel your distance? Uh, did she feel that you were MIA emotionally?
2: Absolutely. And I was, I was absolutely emotionally distant and, uh, you know, every, everything was, falling apart and what I what I would do is I would spend uh you know extensive hours in the office uh make excuses of why I couldn't come home and what I'd be doing is just you know drinking and drugging around the clock in my office uh, alone and and miserable and I uh, you know I think a uh a lot of recovery starts in a, a, a dark basement alone, drinking, you know, warm vodka. And, you know, that's certainly where, where my recovery really started. And, and uh, I just, uh, self, self-loathing. Oh, it, you know, yeah. the, the, the book talks about, there's a line in the, in the big book, that's, a, you know, the, the text for, for Alcoholics Anonymous. It talks about, you know, quick, quicksand stretched out all around me. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the bitter morass it talks about the bitter morass of self pity which you know I thought was it, when I read that line I'm like that was me yeah. uh, you couldn't describe it any better than that the, the, the self loathing the the denial the just you know again just so so uncomfortable with myself with how I'm living my life and um, knowing I need help not knowing where to get help. And, you know, I think it's, it was especially difficult for, um, there's, there's, my dad used to tell me this to me and I, and I thought it was very interesting. He said, you know, you know, Matt, no, no one is, uh, no one is too stupid for AA, but plenty of people are too smart for it. And I didn't know what he was really talking about. It took me a little while to figure that out,
1: Mm -hmm. but
2: what, what I found with my alcoholism and my drug addiction was one problem in my life that, you know, self-knowledge could not heal. And, you know, I've been told self can't heal self. And that's was absolutely the true truth with alcoholism. And my problem was I would not accept that fact. I would not accept that I could not think my way or do something myself to get around the problem and make it so I can drink and drug like a normal human being, like a sophisticated individual that I thought I was.
1: Yes. And Uh, and a smart man and a problem solver and self-reliant and independent fiercely. Right. And so why would I want to rely on anybody else?
2: Right. And to me, you know, I've always, again, I don't know if I've been taught this or that was just my feeling, but that, you know, asking for help is, is weak. Mm-hmm. And I, I, whatever I do, I never want to show weakness. And what I, you know, what I've learned through recovery, that, that really was just self-centered fear and that I was actually scared. And my response to being scared is to, you know, do it myself and I'll get it done. And, yeah. uh, that didn't work. Uh, it, it didn't work at all. I remember towards the end, I, um, I was basically doctor shopping and was hoping to be diagnosed with some form of mental health disease that uh, was the cause of my discomfort.
0: Yes. And
2: I was hoping that pill would solve my issues so that I could drink and drug like a normal human being. You were hoping
1: that a pill would solve your mental health problem.
2: That's right. Got it. That's, Absolutely right, and uh, looking for a magic bullet. That's right, that's right, and and unfortunately, I did not find one. Uh, But what I did find is more misery and more discomfort. And you know, I I finally met a professional that was able to be honest with me and to tell me what I didn't necessarily want to hear. Uh, but that I knew deep down was the truth. and And the truth was I needed to go away to a substance abuse um, institution, mm-hmm. and I needed to be removed from drugs and alcohol and and detoxed medically. and i i I remember immediately going into debate debate mode about, you know the length of my stay and the various problems that revolved around <laughs> me leaving for any uh, extended period of time, because I had such a uh, you know successful, unique business that I needed to attend to at all times, because I was very important and yes. uh, irreplaceable. Irreplaceable. Yes. Irreplaceable, and the world could not go on without my direct involvement and and you know day to day input. <laughs> How how'd that debate go with this uh, professional? <laughs> not well, not not well, not well. I, uh, you know what what w- what happened is the um, it, it, I I don't know I I can't really call it anything else but the, the grace of God in that I'm like I listened to what they said and I I went to a uh, rehabilitation center in Karen Pennsylvania and I'll never I'll never forget the car ride there. Um, my wife wasn't talking to me. I'd been up for days. I, my parents uh, wouldn't let me, they were talking to me. Uh, They wouldn't let me drive myself because they didn't think I'd make it there, which they were right. There's no way I would have. Uh, and uh, driving it. <laughs> odds are. <laughs> yeah, the odds are I wasn't going to make it there. Or at least I was going to get there, but it would take a lot longer than the, the, the five the hours to get detour there. Detour every once in a while. Right. There'd, be, right. there'd be a few detours. And I remember the, the trip down, <laughs> sitting in uh, the back of my parents' car, uh, drinking a, a Dunkin' Donuts cup of uh, filled to the brim of some fine scotch and you know, thinking to myself that, you know, my life is over. I'm never going to have any fun anymore. And I remember um, finally getting to rehab and, and, and crying and not wanting to go in and finally, finally going in. And the first, one of the first things they, they, they did is they, they were searching me and they, they said, you know, do you have any, any drugs on you? And, you know, they said, secrets keep you sick. And I, I didn't understand at all what they were talking about, but I was fairly confident I'd used all the drugs on the way down there. Uh, and apparently at that point I didn't cause there were just so many and they were everywhere. Uh, so <laughs> that's how it started in rehab. And, um, you know, I thought they were, they were very well versed in dealing with people like me. Uh, I remember telling them that there was a blackout period for phones and stuff like that. And I said, well, you know, I need to I need to use my phone because I need to, you know, talk to clients and handle all these calls. And they um, they kept saying, We'll come back tomorrow and we'll we'll talk further about that. So I'd go back tomorrow doggedly and talk to them again and then they'd say the same thing. And I was like, wait a second, what's going on? What's going on here? And I remember finally they're like, I wore them down. Uh, alcoholics are good like that. We're very persistent. And they, they said, they said, you can use your phone. You can use it for 15 minutes at five 30 in the morning. <laughs> so I said, oh, "Wow!" not to be denied, not to be denied. I said, no problem. I will be there. So I, I go to get my phone. I'm all nervous. I think I'm going to have 300 messages from all my clients that are, you know, all these things they need my help with. Uh, there were three messages on my phone and two were from my mother.
1: So <laughs> how, that, how
2: important am I? That was, that was a real dose of reality for me. That's um, cool. What, where I thought I was and what I thought I was as to, as compared to the realities of my situation at that time right. and the level my delusion had taken me to, I mean, it just, I was believing things and, and living a life based on something that wasn't, that wasn't real. So and this was,
1: this right sized you.
2: That's right. That's right. But I mean, was there so, was there a relief in that? I wonder. I, I think I think you know to begin a path to recovery, you need to be. I I needed to be yeah. smashed to ashes so I could find in those ashes a little dose of humility, to be able to start a, a path to recovery and recognize that. I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. I, I have no, I might know a lot of things about a lot of different stuff, but what I don't know is how to stay sober. And that's, that, that's
1: the definition of humility, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah, that, that absolutely. And and so again, that needed to happen. And, and I remember um, talking to a counselor, at, at the rehabilitation facility. And I talked to him and I said, well, you know, I wanted to know their numbers, their success rates. So I, I talked to him about what their level of success has been and, you know, what percentages of their of their alumni stay sober, et cetera, et cetera. I wanted to know all the numbers. The guy had the best answer in the world. Uh, he said to me, he said, well, our success rate's 100%. Uh, everybody leaves here sober but it's what you do after you get out of here, that's gonna determine whether you stay sober or not. And you know, what truer words had never been spoken uh, because for me, 30 days felt like an eternity. It was a, a tiny, tiny sliver of time based on, you know, the realities of the situation. And for me, It really did. My recovery really started when I got out of, um, you know, the institution and started to work a program of of recovery in my life. And, you know, for me, that that's, you know, I worked out the Alcoholics Anonymous program. Um, The the I like to sum up my early recovery really in in one sentence, because I think it really captures everything. And my, my early recovery basically was, it was me doing a bunch of stuff that I didn't want to do, that I didn't think would work, that changed the entire trajectory of my life. And it all worked.
1: That's powerful. Doing what I didn't want to do, that I didn't think would work, that changed my entire trajectory. So that's blind faith, right? I don't know how to do this, but you do know how to do this so I will listen to you and I will just one day at a time do what I'm told.
2: Right that's right. And, and the fight was was beaten out of me. I, I just I, I needed to tenderize myself into submission before I could actually submit to doing something that you know wasn't one of my plans
1: so this is the surrender step correct coming out of treatment it's like i'm going to surrender my will over to aa or to the treatment team or to uh, a higher power and i'm going to take direction and follow the advice of people that are several years clean and sober
2: that's right that's right and i you know i was very lucky to uh get a, a sponsor, uh, a guide, you know, early on in my recovery. And, uh, you know, he, he happened also to be an attorney, which, which didn't matter. I just, yeah. it was nice to have someone that I could relate to on a variety of different levels, uh, through, you know, that we could talk about the practice of law and, and they already understood the various, stressors that are that are involved with, in, in that type of practice.
1: And did he approach you in a meeting and say, if you want, I'll be your temporary sponsor? Or did you actually go up to him and ask him to sponsor you?
2: You know, it was a little bit different. I think uh, my father had, had spoken to him and he knew, you know what? No, I, I, I called him when I got back cool. and he asked me if I had a sponsor. I said, no. And then he said, you do not.
1: Oh, so thank God. I
2: didn't, wait, I didn't really <laughs> ask him. He kind of told me. That's very
1: lucky. That's very helpful. I know. It's, it's very hard to ask somebody. Now, we're coming up on a break, but we've been talking to Matt, uh, an attorney with nine and a half years of recovery, and he's been telling us what life was like before and how he got into recovery and the uh, program that has worked for him. When we come back, we'll be talking about why lawyers are at an increased risk for addiction and mental health problems and what we can do about it. And also the benefits of sobriety in Matt's life and how he can achieve a work life balance. So stay tuned. You don't want to miss this.
0: Treatment of opioid use disorder is a CME approved video for healthcare professionals. This comprehensive video covers how to talk to patients about three FDA approved treatment options the research behind each medication, and how to help patients choose the right medication for them. You'll learn everything you ever wanted to know about these treatment options to be able to treat patients in your office with ease. This video simplifies the prescribing of buprenorphine and includes buprenorphine home induction instructions for patients and pamphlets for patients and their families. Visit DrPatriciaHalligan.com for more information. Benzodiazepines The Epidemic We Aren't Talking About is a CME-approved video for healthcare professionals. This very comprehensive video describes the dangers of taking benzodiazepines and Z-drugs long-term and teaches how to deprescribe them safely and effectively. We outline how to talk to your patients before, during, and after a long, slow Valium taper, how to build your patient a village of support, and offer a deprescribing toolkit. Find out more about this package and what it includes. Visit drpatriciahalligan.com. You are listening to Recovery, The Hero's Journey. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Patricia Halligan, or if you struggle with addiction and would like information about resources that can help, send an email to phalliganmd at gmail.com. That's phalliganmd at gmail.com. Now, back to Recovery, The Hero's Journey.
1: And we're back with Matt. Matt, I want to ask, how do you maintain a healthy work-life balance? You're still working full-time in a busy law practice. How how do you do it to maintain balance and sustain your recovery?
2: Well... You know, I, I think balance is balance is a tricky thing. And, you know, sometimes I just refer to balance as a line I see as I, you know, fly one way over it, going one way and another way, going the other way. Cause I think with um with my my type of practice there's there's ebbs and flows when you know there there's various litigation involved and that just frankly requires more uh, work and more preparation and more office time witness preparation court time that um, you know just demands <laughs> more time but I have some constants in my life that that uh, I'm a box checker all right so I, I have certain things that must be done every day okay and i I, I find that having established a firm foundation in my early recovery. I, I've gotten to know a bunch of things that are that are necessary for me. And, and to be quite honest with you, I'm scared to not do them. Uh, I, I, my philosophy is, you know, I need to do today what kept me sober yesterday if I want to stay sober today.
1: That's a great and philosophy.
2: You know, it, 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 is, it is a day at a time program yeah. and there, I cannot stay sober on what I did yesterday. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not about what I say I'm going to do or anything like that. It's what, what am I actually doing? Uh, right. How am I staying connected to the AA program? And r- what I found through, through recovery is that it makes my job a whole heck of a lot easier. Uh, that AA and, and sobriety has shown me a way and given me a path to having an inner serenity in my life and recognizing that uh, the world will always be chaotic for me. Uh, just because I'm sober uh, does not mean that the chaos of the world stops and certainly not with the the nature of, of my practice area. Uh, it's wrought with conflict, but I don't have to catastrophize my future in my head. I, I don't have to uh, get emotionally involved in certain things. I, what, I, what I have to do is you know, remain honest in my dealings, uh, do the right thing when I'm presented with options in my life, and you know, not revert back to the behaviors that got me in trouble in the first time. I, I remember uh, when, I, when I first got sober, struggling with the idea of how to be an honest lawyer. You know? And uh, I, I really, I don't know why I struggled with it so hard. I just did, because I was so dishonest before. And I remember talking to my father and, and him telling me, he said, well, you know what you do is you just be honest. <laughs> I like, well, that's profound. <laughs> thanks, 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 Dad. You know, I, I appreciate your insight, but the reality is it's true. You know, I, I, I need to do the right thing and um, be responsive, be responsible, be accountable. Uh, you know, I know I'm in the business of, you know, trying to um, basically... Manipulate outcomes for, for lack of a better word, uh, but you know that doesn't mean I, I have to be dishonest in any of my in any of my my dealings. And um,
1: I like your conflict; it really speaks to your character and your integrity. I want to be honest and do my job, and if I maintain my own inner serenity, the whole world can be falling down around me. But that's got to be my top priority. Right? Is to be true to myself, be honest in my dealings be the best I can be and maintain my serenity.
2: That's right. That's right. And I think, um, you know, all that falls apart unless the recovery piece is, is put at the forefront, you know? So if I'm not working a a good program, I'm really not able to, you know, be serene in the other areas of my life. I, I just, I find it, Absolutely shocking. I I thought what I would get from recovery was I just wouldn't drink anymore and I wouldn't have to drink. And the obsession that this mind numbing obsession may be lifted. Uh, If that was all that happened, that I wasn't drinking, I probably would be drunk right now. Uh, What has happened is there's been a complete it's there's a book. It's called a, A New Pair of Glasses. I, I love it right it's it's basically what recovery has given me it's given me a new pair of glasses and uh i can look at life in a different way and it's it's just such a better way to live but the work-life balance is is difficult because you have you know you have family uh you have your aa program and then you have the mind-numbing demands of your profession it's a lot. Yeah, yeah, it, it really is. But what I found is I'm so much more effective in the way that um, I handle all those areas that those those areas have gotten a lot easier to handle and manage. And what used to set me off in any one of those areas doesn't, or home or work, doesn't, doesn't anymore. Because I, I have this... I have a home life with, you know, I'm lucky that my wife never left me. Thank God. You know, I have two wonderful children. One of them's never seen me take a drink before in her life. And, um, you know, my wife went to, you know, she was an Al-Anon and she's got a black belt in recovery as well. So (laughs) we speak speak the same language. And that's very helpful because we can talk on what what I would think is a much higher level because it certainly was... None of our conversations were like that before. That's am,
1: that's amazing. So Matt, um, you are familiar with the Hazelden American Bar Association study that was published in 2016 in the Journal of Addiction Medicine, where I think you told me about this. They surveyed 13,000 practicing American judges and attorneys, and they found that not only 20, 21% of attorneys were problem drinkers and 32% of attorneys under the age of 30 were problem drinkers, but 28% were suffering from symptoms of depression, and 19% had anxiety. So how come lawyers are at a greater risk than the general population for addiction and mental health problems? What is it about the practice of law and the legal culture that puts lawyers at greater risk, do you think?
2: Well, I, I can only speak for myself, but, you know, I think the the lawyers in general are, you know, an, an overachie- overachieving uh, area of, of the population. And I, I think we have a bunch of similarities in that we always want to win, be successful. We want to be right all the time. And I, I think that doesn't... Um, it doesn't bode well for real life and in living life i think there's a lot of pressures uh, that are that are put on lawyers certainly certainly the big firm lawyers with the uh, minimum billing requirements and you know that they, they some of them it's you know 10 hours a day or nine or 10 hours a day of actual billing time which you can't really do in a, in a day without working you know 13, 14 hours, which means you're really going to end up working seven days a week. And, you know, that that's pretty tough to sustain. And, and, and it's soul crushing. Soul crushing. Yeah. Absolutely soul crushing. I know from my end, a lot of, um, you know, the, the litigation is quite stressful. It's, it's as I touched on before, I, you know, we're in the business of trying to do whatever we can within the bounds of the law to manipulate an outcome. And and that is a lot of pressure. That is, you know, the effort is trying to control uh, certain situations that may or may not be controllable while anticipating any any, um, obstacles that might come up in our path and then the obstacles to the obstacles, and you know, it, you can take it out, out a variety of levels. But the, the reality is, it's just a bunch of pressure. And I think probably with the the younger lawyers, they're even under more pressure because you know, as you mature in your your practice, you're able to do things a lot faster. Uh, you you just your institutional knowledge is so much greater that you know, things that would concern you in your first, you know, five or 10 years of practice don't concern you anymore because you've seen it all. And, you know, I don't think really you hit that mark till probably you've, probably ever, (laughs) but, you know, you've at least seen a lot of stuff when you're 15, 20 years in that, uh, you know, that you can deal with and you can address because you've, you've done it a thousand times before. I
1: think you're right. So it's these young lawyers, in the first 10 years of practice, who are probably at greatest risk for the depression, the anxiety, and the substance use problems. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I think you become your job if you're working 12 hours a day, seven days a week, right? And you get, you actually have to disconnect from who you are personally, don't you? You have to disconnect from a lot of um, emotional parts
2: of yourself, right? Well, that's, that. that's right. And I think, you know, a lot of, um, attorneys, their, their identity is not as an individual, their identity is, you know, I'm so-and-so an attorney and that's, they, they, that's their life, you know, right. and I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't think that's healthy. And I think you need to cultivate back to the balance. I mean, you need balance in all areas of your life. And if you're just working or if you're home thinking about working and not being present at home and unable to detach yourself, uh, that's. You know, that's, that sounds to me like a very tough way to live.
1: So what are, you told me you are a man of boxes. So on a daily basis, you have to maintain your own serenity, even though the world around you is falling down and chaotic. That's what right. what are the boxes like on a daily basis? What do you do to maintain your own serenity?
2: Well, I think prayer meditation is um, one of the things that's, that absolutely is, is a must. Uh, certainly the, the prayer portion, I, I, have a little I have a I don't want to call it a ceremony but I you know have a cup of coffee in my conference room when when I get to work I say my prayers and then I try to I try to meditate which I, I'm not very good at meditating I've been trying to meditate for quite a quite a long time and I, I don't seem to be getting any better but I think I could also be trying a lot harder because my brain's like a ping pong ball about what I have to do during the day. (laughs) It's very tough.
1: (laughs) And and I think there's so many different ways of meditating. We had Thomas Moore on the show, and uh, he's a spiritual leader. And he said he doesn't sit around and try to meditate. He actually meditates on his walk, but he doesn't try to rid his mind of thoughts. He actually walks and appreciates nature. And that's his way of meditating. Whatever works,
2: right? Right, but remember, I'm an overachiever, so the, the result I would get would like to, I would like to be levitating in my meditation, right? And that's that's unfortunately I've not reached that 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 zone of spiritual connectedness. I think keep you know, coming another, back, right? That's right. That's right. Another another thing I do is I, I, I build into my weeks. I I sponsor guys in uh, in the program, and I build into my calendar uh, weekly meetings. With, with the guys that I work with, they actually come to my office and, you know, we, we go through the book together and that, you know, frankly, it, it's the best hour I spend during the day and it's certainly the best for me.
1: What does it do for you?
2: Uh, well, you know, what I didn't know and what I've learned in recovery is what actually uh, gives me an inner sense of happiness. And I thought it was a lot of stuff and it's not. It's doing stuff for other people uh, with no expectation of any type of repayment and just trying to help someone else that actually makes me feel good about myself and gives me a actual true sense of comfort.
1: And you have also, I think you've told me, you meet with lawyers once a month, lawyers in recovery in your own personal office, correct?
2: That's right. That's right. We uh, We have a lawyers meeting once a month uh, down in the conference room and you know we also we the the local bar association we get calls and referrals uh, about lawyers that are struggling with um, alcohols and drugs and there also is a mental health component that's just not our component because that's not our currency you know I, I'm, I'm not qualified to, help someone with that. Whereas I am qualified to help someone with an alcohol or, or drug addiction, because that's, you know, that's my experience.
1: Oh, interesting. And how does that work?
2: Well, we, we get the referral. And then our policy is always that uh, two lawyers, not not one, but two will go and arrange a meeting, will go to their office. And it's, it's really a typical 12 step call uh, in the olden days. All right? cool. We go in and, you know, we've been kicked out of offices before. Uh, that's okay. You know, I've been to the ICU and talking to a guy who had, uh, you know, an esophageal hemorrhage. And we told him our story and he said, thank you very much. I, I appreciate you guys. I don't have a problem. It's okay. You know, yeah, that's I, just that's where okay. he's at, right? That's where he's at. Right. That, that's where he's at. And, um, you know, I think we've been able to connect with a lot of people. Um, I think that's
1: amazing. So the grievance would come from where? The complaint? How would you be alerted that a lawyer has a, an alcohol or a drug problem?
2: Well, that would, we, they we're protected by the judiciary law. So anyone that we talk to, we have absolute immunity to not, because I mean, we take confidentiality. Nothing is more serious to us than 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 confidentiality. And um, it's important to maintain that with whoever we're talking to or working with. So we get referrals from other lawyers. Uh, we have judges that call us. We have various um, connections in, in, in the courthouse administrative staff that uh, observe certain people that give us calls about certain people. And what, what we do is, you know, if we get a call, we, we verify it. We like two separate two separate sources of information. Okay. And then we arrange a, a, a meeting with the attorney and, you know, it, tell them our stories and what it was like for us. And that it doesn't have to be like this anymore. It doesn't. And that's really the message we're trying to convey. I was in a, you know, a, a self-created hell that I was throwing gasoline on and didn't know I was, I was throwing gasoline on this fire uh, until I was, you know, pulled out, and you know, now I, I feel as I have a duty to uh, try and repay a debt that really, you know, can't be repaid.
1: I think it's wonderful, and I don't think there's anything as a failed intervention. You're reaching out your hand. You're saying, "Hey, buddy, it doesn't have to be like this." My name is Matt. Here's my contact information, and this is what my story is. And you know what, if he's not ready now, the guy with alcohol problems with the bleeding esophageal varices in an ICU bed, he might be ready uh, after his uh, second DWI or when his wife leaves him or after he has a fall and uh, you know has a concussion or something. But he will remember that there is an outstretched hand somewhere. And if there's a lawyer listening right now, Matt, who is scared to self-report, he doesn't know where to turn, he's afraid he's going to be turned into the bar, who should he call?
2: Well, I I think the the first, the the start would be the statewide bar association. I, I think they probably would be in every state that they would have a lawyer's assistance program. Um, certainly I can understand the lawyer from a, you know, a smaller community or something like that, not wanting to uh, reach out to the local bar association because, you know, they think everyone would know or something like that. But I sure. think, uh, uh, the reality is everyone probably already knows, uh, at least that, that was my reality. I, I, I didn't think anyone knew I had a problem, but everybody did, uh, except for me.
1: right (laughs) yeah but
2: the, the state bar level is probably the best place to start
1: and what is the bar association doing uh to help increase awareness and prevent uh and treat mental health and substance misuse problems among attorneys and what can individual law firms do
2: well, I think it's about awareness and, you know, getting a message out, one, that it's confidential, one, you know, two, that uh, a message of hope, because that really is what we offer. And, you know, from talking to anyone uh, within the Lawyers Concern for Lawyers program in, in my uh, county, <laughs> we, we've all had the same experience. I mean, we, we've all got rescued um, and got a second chance at life. And it's certainly a much better round this go round than last time. But I think, uh, you know, the awareness is key. I really think that's probably the number one thing that can be done. Uh, people isolate and they think they can fix it all themselves. And they can't. I couldn't.
1: Wouldn't it be lovely if the law firm said you can go away to treatment? 28-day uh, pre, uh, you know, treatment, or you can go away to a three-month treatment. When you get back, we'll put you in part-time <laughs> for you know six to eight weeks, and then we'll reevaluate, and you will not lose your job.
2: That would be the best possible thing in the world the law firms could do. I agree. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know if that will happen. <clears throat> Excuse me, but that would be the the best way to uh, assist someone. On the path of recovery,
1: because you're not ready after twenty eight days of rehab to jump right back into the fire, are you? And work a not, sixty to seventy hour
2: work week? Not at all. No, not what, at all. What I,
1: did you do when you came out of a twenty eight day program?
2: Well, I was I was fortunate in that um, you know I was at a, a smaller firm, but I had a, a a partner that could take over some of my workload for me, and what I was able to do, and what was you know, I was finally listening to these people in my life that seemed to know a lot more than I did about recovery. Was that I needed to establish a firm foundation, and that if I didn't establish a firm foundation in recovery, uh, things might be good for a while, but they're not going to stay good, and things are going to go bad at some point uh, as my you know my fee, my my foundation eroded. And I worked part time uh, for at least a few months and just kind of slowly. Edged my way back in, and and really just concentrated on my recovery for I I want to say that whole first year. It's not that I don't concentrate on it now, but
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, that was a real that was it that was the priority in my life. And, and
1: how many meetings did you go to when you first got out of rehab? Uh, AA meetings. You did
2: AA and NA, did you? I just did I just did AA just because I I could relate and yep. I I I got what I wanted out of it. And I, you know I I don't. I don't have any problem with NA or HA or CA. I, I could qualify for any of those groups, I'm sure. But, you know, that just, I identified with people in AA and, you know, I encourage anyone to use any of those routes or any other route that you, that you want where you identify because, you know, all recoveries are, are absolutely different.
1: And tell me before we close the benefits of sobriety that, the benefits of recovery in your life. And I'm looking at uh, how you feel about yourself, how you see yourself differently, relationships.
2: Well, I'll say it like this. When I used to look at myself in the mirror, I did not like what I saw. I did not like the man staring back at me. Uh, I I was disgusted with who who I was and I can tell you today that I am proud of who I am. Uh, For the first time in my life, I I actually know who I am and what's important to me and and what's important to my life. And um, the benefits are are exponential. Uh, Every single, what I didn't know was that A, would make me a whole hell of a lot better lawyer. I I did not know that that was the case. And That's interesting, how so? It's just the, well, for the nature of what I do, I, I do domestic relations mm-hmm. and, you know, the the AA, the, the philosophies that I was, I've been taught in AA uh, work for, it's, it's a recipe for living. It's a recipe for life that really works. And I find if I regurgitate that information upon my clients, uh, it seems to be very well received. And, you know, I, I feel like I'm in a position to really, really help people, but the benefits I, I could go on for another hour because there is no area of my life that has not dramatically changed from nine and a half years ago. There, there is no area. I'm a better son to my mother. I'm a better uh, husband to my wife. I'm a better dad to my children. You know, I, I go on ad infinitum.
1: I, I heard somebody say, "If you want to change the world, become present and uh, become awake." And that's what it sounds like. You're, you're awake, you know who you are, and you are available for connection. That's right. And how that's many right. years married now? Uh, 14. Give me a couple of adjectives to describe this marriage.
2: Loving. I, I learned in AA again that uh, love is an action word. And it's not about me telling my wife that I love her and you respect her. It's me showing her how I love her and how I respect her. Um, you know, the, our, our, our connection level is like nothing I ever would have experienced. And I, I find myself just so incredibly, incredibly lucky to be married to the woman I'm married to. I, I, She's, she's a rock in my life and, um, you know, a great mother and just a, a fantastic spouse. So,
1: Matt, th- these, this has been wonderful uh, sharing this hour with you. I mean, basically, this is a story of a man who uh, basically reconnected with his
2: soul. Yeah, that's, that, that's, a, that's a great way of putting it. But that's really what recovery is. So
1: thank you very much for being on the show and uh, for sharing your experience, strength, and hope with us.
2: Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity.
1: My pleasure. Um, This is Recovery, The Hero's Journey, and uh, we'll see you all next week.
0: Thank you for joining us this week. Recovery, The Hero's Journey, is broadcast every Tuesday at 12 noon Pacific time and 3 p.m. Eastern time on the Voice America Health and Wellness channel. As you wait for our next program, remember, you are definitely not alone.